Let's pray. Now, Father, we come to your word and ask you to reveal to us your Son in his glory. We've read already of what the prophets foretold about the coming of Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, what his name was to be called, Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, Emmanuel, God with us, not separated from us, not out there somewhere, but here, near, close, imminent. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for coming to us in the person of your son, that we might be redeemed, that we might experience the forgiveness of sins and be changed. Help us now, Father, as we look at some great truths of your Son from your Word, that you would be glorified and we would be overjoyed with his majesty and glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are not in the Gospel of John. Take a two-week break from that, maybe a little longer. Um, We're in Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. I think if you go out on the street this Christmas season and speak to any number of people, you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who will say they don't like Jesus. This is Texas. This is the South. Everybody likes Jesus. Parents like Jesus um, because he's such a, a wonderful moral example to their kids. The children like Jesus because of the wonderful stories about his birth, the manger, the magi, the animals in the stall. Salesmen like Jesus because uh, Black Friday, this is, um, this is where they make the most money during the year. Biggest profits all year long happen around Christmas. Preachers of every stripe, liberal and otherwise, like Jesus because um, without him they, they wouldn't have a job, at least Politicians like Jesus because their constituency is made up of people like parents and salesmen and preachers who might not vote for them if they didn't say they like Jesus. But it's not just individuals who would say that they like Jesus. Even even satanic cults around the world, major world religions also say that they like Jesus. For example, the Mormons like Jesus because they think he demonstrates the potential that all men might someday achieve. They say this, as man is, God was, as God is, man may become. And to them, Jesus is the highest human example of the possibility of becoming God. The Jehovah's Witnesses like Jesus for a similar reason. He's the perfect example of the perfect man. He is the ultimate law keeper. He is a model to emulate whose character and virtue they strive to achieve in hope that Jehovah might one day smile upon them and grant them the privilege of becoming one of the 144,000 who will inherit the kingdom. They're having a big problem these days because there's more than 144,000 in their denomination and not sure what to do. The Unification Church loves Jesus because they see it, they kind of see him as the one who demonstrates how to be Messiah to a confused people who need the kingdom of God on earth. The Hare Krishnas love Jesus, and they say Krishna means Christ. And Jesus was the master preacher of God consciousness. Even the Muslims say they like Jesus because they see him as one of the major prophets. Allah um, being God And all of the others being major prophets, men like Noah and Abraham and David and Jacob and Joseph and Job and and Moses, all of them being one step lower than the ultimate prophet whose name was Muhammad. At Christmas time, everyone with very few exceptions liked Jesus. We all like Jesus. Everyone but the hardened atheist likes manger scenes and pageantries and candlelight services and 
the things that we do, the decorations, the gift giving, and of course, receiving. And who wouldn't like Jesus? I mean, as, as long as you can think of him any way you please, as long as you can speak of him as one who came from your favorite heavenly or earthly place of origin, for whatever purpose might best support your personal beliefs, I mean, why wouldn't you like Jesus? He's like a plastic nose. You can just shape him and form him into anything you want him to be. But I wonder, I wonder if the truth about Jesus, the truth of his identity, the place of his origin, his eternal purpose, if all of that came to light in an authoritative manner, how many of those very same people who say they like Jesus would suddenly hate him? and suddenly despise him. And I suppose to answer that question, you only have to fast forward a little bit in our study in the Gospel of John and go to Good Friday, where when confronted by the truth, you know what happened. They not only hated him, they murdered him. They killed him. During the Christmas season, we all sing that beloved Christmas hymn, what child is this? We sang it last week. I don't think we're planning on singing it today. But you know that song, What Child Is This? And I think that not only, not only makes a, a great Christmas carol, it's just a great question. What child is this? What child is this? Is it the Mormon child? Is it the Jehovah's Witness child? Is it the Harry Krishna child, the Muslim child, the child of your own understanding? What child is this? Who is this one called Jesus of Nazareth? I think that's a tremendously relevant question, especially in our particular cultural revolution that's taking place in our country. And it's not just a question these, for us living in these postmodern times. It's a question that was asked even back in Jesus' day and asked repeatedly, for example, Matthew 21, Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem and acting as if he were the newly inaugurated king, and the people laid down their coats and palm branches, and he rode on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and Matthew tells us that all the city was stirred, and they asked a question. You know what that question was? Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Of Galilee. In Mark chapter 4, verses 39 through 41, the disciples were in a boat when Jesus, um, when Jesus confronted a violent storm. This is not the only place this happened. And Jesus, on a couple of occasions, either sent his men out alone or joined them. In this case, it's where he was in the back of the boat and he fell asleep when the storm came and they woke him up. And they, remember Peter said to him, Lord, don't you care that we're going to drown here? Which had to be a bit of an insulting question to Jesus. He wasn't troubled by it. And Jesus stands up. Remember what he does? He tells the wind and the waves, hush, be still. And the lake became as smooth as glass. And the disciples, Mark says, became very much afraid. It's interesting, they were, they were terrified of the, of, the, um, of the storm outside the boat, but they became more afraid of the God in the boat. And they, they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And we could go to the next gospel, Luke chapter 5, verse 21, when some men tore a hole in somebody's roof because Jesus was in there teaching and they brought a friend hoping that Jesus would heal him. Jesus said to the man, friend, your sins have been forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees asked an interesting question. They said, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive, God, for, forgive sins except God alone? And then in Luke chapter 7, just a couple chapters later, when Jesus was at dinner and the sinful woman came and broke that bottle of perfume over his feet and wiped it with her hair, Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. 
And those who were reclining at the table with him said to themselves, Who is this man who forgives sins? And then a couple of chapters later, Luke chapter 9, we find out that Herod is also this intrigued by Jesus. He becomes curious about his identity. And he asks, Who is this man about whom I hear such things? And Jesus knew that everyone was asking this question. I mean, it was, it was exact, the exact question that every man must answer. Who is this man? By the way, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus turns the question on his disciples. And Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, how could they say that? Well, John the Baptist had been beheaded. And some thought John the Baptist came back in the person of Jesus. Others say Elijah, no doubt because of the miracles. But others were saying Jeremiah, the great weeping prophet. Or one of the prophets, and he said to them, here's the really relevant question. But who do you say that I am? What child is this? Beloved, this is the most important question you'll you'll ever answer. And it's a question that the Lord not only posed to his disciples, but one that he lays at your feet this morning. What child is this? Who do you say Jesus is? Eternity hangs on this question. And by it, many will be crushed under the holy judgment of God. And by it, some will be brought to eternal life. What child is this? Seems to me the only place we can learn the right answer to this question is in the writings of people who actually knew Jesus. Matthew and John knew him personally. Mark and Luke wrote on behalf of others who knew him personally. But I don't want to take the time to survey an entire gospel. That would, that would take a little while, as we've seen. Last week in John was Sermon 108. And so let's, let's be a little more efficient about this and look to another man's writings, namely the Apostle Paul. He came to know Jesus after the resurrection. He once wrote a short letter to the church of Colossae, And in one short section of this letter, just six verses long, he reveals the answer to our question with truth so profound and so wonderful, it may provoke us to be lost in wonder, love, and praise for eternity. This is that great place where we find the answer to this most important of all questions, because Paul was writing through a group of, group of believers who were being assaulted by false teaching in their church. And some were teaching, as many do today, that Jesus could not be thought to be God in the flesh. In our day, there are a thousand different explanations for why the man, Christ Jesus, could not possibly be God. But in that bastion of Greek philosophy where Colossae, Colossae was located, it was It was believed that the spirit is good and flesh is evil. And so you you see the problem. If Jesus came in the flesh, then he must be evil. Because it's a a philosophical non sequitur to think that in one man could be both spirit, the spirit of God, and humanity. Humanity. Either Jesus was an emanation of God, a spirit that looked like a man, or he was a man who acted like he was from God, but he couldn't be both. He just couldn't be both. And Paul knew, however, that such teaching was a damnable distortion of the truth and would lead many to hell. And so he wrote, at least in part, to correct this false teaching about the identity of Jesus. Now, our text is found in in that New Testament book, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, with the Apostle Paul taking this few words out of these few verses, by it, he crushes the most significant false teaching about the identity of Jesus in his day. 
And by it, we learn six glorious things about the identity of this child who was laid in the manger on that first Christmas morning. What child is this? Well, let's stand together and read and find out. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. What child is this? Six things. Number one, he is the image of God. Verse 15, it just states it that way. He is the image of the invisible God. Another way of saying it is, he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. The God who no one can see or has seen has made himself known in Jesus Christ. It's ironic that some of the modern cults use this verse to show that Jesus was not God. They suggest that the phrase image of God image of the invisible God shows that Jesus was nothing more than a created being who bore God's image. But that can't possibly be. To the contrary, Paul is explaining what it, what it is that makes Jesus different from all other mortals. If Paul is saying that Jesus bore the image of God, which God says of humanity when he created him, he created us, he stamped us with the image of God. But if Paul is saying that Jesus merely bore the image of God, as men do, he is not saying anything different than Moses said back in chapter 1 of Genesis, that all humanity and Adam and Eve, including Adam and Eve, were created in the likeness of God. We are image bearers. Was Jesus an image bearer? Yes, he was an image bearer, but he was far more than that. Paul, however, did not say that Jesus bore the image of God. He said Jesus is the image of God. He is the image of God. The Greek word for image here is icon. It's icon. He is the icon of God. The word icon means perfect replica, precise copy, or duplicate. And Paul is saying that God himself is, the, is fully manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus said in John 14, 19, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am the icon of God. I am the visible manifestation, not representation, but I am the fullness of the manifestation of the invisible God. Everyone who, had a, who owns a computer or a smartphone, which I hear beeping all over the place this morning, which is normal, no worries, but you have icons, right? What do you call those little figures on your screen? They're icons. And what are they for? They're, they are representations of something profoundly more complex than the goofy little picture that you see. It's just a shadow of what it means that Jesus is the icon. If you want to create a document in Microsoft Word, for example, you go to the icon. It has a blue W these days. 
for that program and, and you click on it and the entire program with all of its complexities and all of its benefits. And you know, most of us at least know that when we're using like even a word processor, we only know about half of what it can do. And when it comes to the icon of God, Jesus Christ, we don't even know half. What he represents in his person relative to being the image of God is so complex, we will spend eternity discovering what is behind it. This is a crude illustration, I realize, in the relationship between Jesus and God. And there's no way that you can get to God except by the icon. You have to go to the icon first, otherwise you never get to what's behind it. And in this case... The icon is Jesus himself, for he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And throughout the Bible, God is said to be the invisible God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we read, no one has ever seen God at any time. And God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live, Exodus 33. And when Paul wrote to Timothy, he called God, 1 Timothy 1.7, the invisible God. And here in Colossians 1.15, Paul makes reference to the invisible God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who makes the invisible God visible. In chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says this, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. You know what that means? It means this. What does it mean to be God? Whatever that means, Jesus is full of it. And he has all of it. He's not just a representation of God. He is God. He is deity. He is the fullness of God. The author of Hebrews speaks of the same truth with different words. When he writes in chapter 1, verse 3 of the book of Hebrews, he says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of his nature. And then in Colossians 2, 9, Paul, Paul makes it about as explicit as words can make it by saying, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It's interesting when you read the book of Colossians, knowing now what Paul was dealing with, you know, the, that, that uh, philosophical dualism, that there's spirit and there's flesh and he can't combine the two. God is spirit, men are flesh, he just can't combine the two. And yet Paul repeatedly says Jesus came in the flesh. He talks about his body repeatedly. What's he doing? He is assaulting that false doctrine. It's the same kind of doctrine, more cleverly developed in our day, but it's the same. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, Jesus is God. And that's the first answer to the question. What child is this? First of all, he is the image of God. He is the icon of God. And by the way, you want to know why the church has always embraced the second of the Ten Commandments, at least the evangelical church, has always had an aversion for any kind of icon, images. Um, God said, you shall not make any graven image. It wasn't that we were not to make a graven image of other things. We couldn't, you know, a, a, a lot of people in the early church thought art is out. You're not allowed to make an image of anything. So nobody's allowed to paint anything. You're not allowed to draw anything. That wasn't God's purpose. His purpose was this. Don't make an image of God, which is exactly what Moses or, or, or Aaron and the people of Israel did while Moses was up on Sinai. They didn't say, hey, let's get a new God because the old God has let us down in the desert out here. No. What they did was they got all their gold together, or as Aaron tried to explain it to Moses like a child, we just threw all the gold in the fire and out popped this golden calf. I don't know. 
And they said, Israel, here is your God who led us out of Egypt. This image is a representation of that God. And God was furious. He was up on the mountain carving with his own finger. Thou shalt not make for yourselves a, a, an image. No image. And, and while he was doing that, what were they doing? Making the first image. And Moses came down with the tablets as if it were a marriage covenant and slammed it to the ground and broke it into pieces. And God's judgment came on Israel that day. Thou shalt not make a graven image to worship it, to bow down to it. And the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church will say, well, we're not worshiping the image. It's just a tool for us so that we can worship God. It's a visible representation. Listen, we already have one. It's Jesus. He is the icon of God. God doesn't want anything competing with Jesus. And don't make an image of Jesus either, because you don't know what he looks like. One of my favorite uh, seminary professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, went home to be with the Lord um, this past year. And he told me that, uh, told our class, the greatest movie ever made about Jesus was Ben-Hur. How many of you older folks have seen Ben-Hur, right? Ben-Hur, why? And we were like, as students, we were like, why? I mean, that's not even about Jesus. And his point was, yes, but Jesus makes cameo appearances all the way through. You never see his face. Not once do you see his face. Even Hollywood understood that in its day. You see his back. Sometimes you see a hand. Sometimes you see a, a hooded, cloaked person. But you never see his face. Why? Because they understood. Thou shalt not make for you a graven image or a movie-like image. Beloved, we have an icon. We have an icon who is not just an image. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. He is the exact expression of God's nature. He is God in flesh. And if that's not true, then we are hopeless. Because we have no mediator if Jesus is not the icon of God. Number two, he's not just the icon of God. He's the son of God. Watch this, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now again, people who know little about how to study the Bible have no regard whatsoever for the original language here. Which will take a this kind of phrase to mean that Jesus was a created being just like everyone else. Everything else was created by God. Jesus perhaps was the greatest of God's creation, but he was a creation nonetheless. That's not at all what Paul is saying. And if you have your Greek Testament open right now, which I think a couple of you probably do, you see the word. The Greek word here for firstborn is a very specific word, prototokos. It is an unusual word in the New Testament because it refers to a person's family lineage or origin, uh, but not solely to his, I'm sorry, it's not his, about his family of origin. It's his place in the family, among siblings. He is the highest in rank. To, to understand pro, prototokos, it's this, Prototokos means highest in rank. The firstborn in a Hebrew family was the heir. And you remember uh, from whatever you know about the Old Testament, perhaps, that um, it didn't matter how many boys you had in the home, the firstborn got half. And however many other sons you had, they had to divide it up between them. Why? By virtue of him being the firstborn, he was highest in rank. He would be the one to represent the family. And so Paul is making the point that Jesus is not like any other man. 
Though he was indeed a man, he was also the icon of God and therefore holds the highest rank of firstborn, the one who inherits not only the church, which he'll say in verse 18, but all of creation as well. Of all princes, of all rulers, of all heirs born on earth, or even in heavenly places, he is the one who ranks highest of all. We know this was Paul's meaning because in verse 18, he uses the same word again. Look at verse 18. He says, he is also, referring to Jesus, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn, or the prototokos from the dead, so that he himself might come to have, what? First place in everything. So that all the glory would go to him. Now, we see he's the firstborn from the dead. Does that mean Jesus was the first to rise again from the dead? No. Some of the prophets rose people from the dead before him. Jesus himself raised a couple of people from the dead, Lazarus for one, and another little girl for another. He wasn't the first ever to be raised from the dead, but he was the highest in rank. Does that make sense? Of all the people who would rise from the dead, and that would include us, eventually, he is the one who ranks above all. So that at the name of Jesus, Paul will say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. That Jesus Christ is Jehovah. That's Lord. That he is God. He is God. We see this term also used in the First Testament, Psalm 89, 27. God said to David, I also shall make him my firstborn, and then he says this, the highest of the kings of the earth, the highest in rank. He is the greatest. He is the most glorious. When Paul says that Jesus is the prototokos, the firstborn, he means to use the words of 1 Timothy 6.15, that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the very Son of God. All of this is simply to say that Jesus is the Son. It's not that he was a created being, no different from man or angels, but that of all the living beings, he is the highest in rank, he was the man who is God. He is God in flesh. He is, as we sing in that, in that Christmas hymn, he is incarnate deity. He is the Son of God. And by the way, the Jews understood that this is what Jesus meant. There was no mistake when Jesus referred to himself as the Son of God. In John 5.18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own Father, making himself, what? Equal with God. And so it was fitting then that after his birth, wise men from the east should come to find this one who was born king of the Jews. And they didn't know everything there was to know about the glory of this baby king. But they saw a star in the east, and they knew something wonderful was happening. And so they promptly packed up their camels. They left everything they had. These Gentiles, isn't that amazing? These Gentiles. And they found their way to Jerusalem to worship him. And when they did, they gave him their best. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why? Because he is king of kings. He is the son of God. He is the prototokost. What child is this? He is the image of God. He is the son of God, but notice third, he is the power of God. This is glorious and beautiful. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him, okay, let's just take a running start and, and with 15 again. He is the image of the invisible God. So he's the prototokost. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him, 
all things were created. Now, this is really important. In what sense is he the firstborn of all creation? How can he be the highest in rank of everything that exists? Here's why. By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now that's a mouthful, and there's a lot there. But let's take a shot at this. If any question remains about the meaning of verse 15, these two verses decisively put it to rest. The icon of God, who is the prototokos over all, is none other than almighty creator God himself. This Jesus is not merely part of creation. He is the creator. And what is it that he created? Paul says very clearly, all things. Which means Jesus was not created. Because Jesus created all things. And the Mormons like to say, Jesus is Michael the archangel. But angels were created. Jehovah's Witnesses like to say that Jesus was nothing more than a perfect man. But even a perfect man would have, would have been nothing higher than a created being. Even the best of men is nothing more than a created man. And the apostles' very point is that Jesus was neither of these things. He is, from all eternity, very God of very God. In Genesis 1, Moses revealed that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, all three members of the Godhead had a part in creation. It says, God, we take that to be the Father created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was moving over the waters of the earth, this formless and void thing. And now we see again and again, both in John and in Hebrews and here in Colossians, that Jesus himself is creator God. In fact, here's what the Apostle John says, chapter 1, verse 3, introducing Jesus. I mean, the very first thing that, Jesus, that John does in his gospel is to establish who he's talking about. This is the Logos, the Word who created all that exists. And notice what he says, John 1, 3, all things, and John makes this crystal clear, listen to this, all things came into being through him. And, <clears throat> in case someone will say, yes, but he's only talking about things that Jesus created, we can still say Jesus was a created being. He was just the first of the created beings, and then Jesus took over from there and created everything else. But that's not the end of what John says. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, whatever it is that had a beginning, which would be everything, that was created by Jesus. Everything that existed that wasn't created is God itself, himself. And Jesus is that God. He is God. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If it was created, Jesus created it because he's God. Notice, too, that all things were not only created by him, but here's the glory of Christ. They were created for him. For him. And that's what the text says. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. By the way, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. That's just, that's, um, that's, those are technical terms that refer to the angelic and demonic hosts all things have been created through him and for him. For him. You know the reason modern man can't 
make heads or tails out of the seemingly infinite universe that our world floats in. It's because his, his, underlying, promise, his underlying premise is wrong. Man's underlying premise is wrong. He believes perhaps what the psychologists say, everything exists for me. Or maybe he believes what the atheist says, that everything exists for no purpose and is purely accidental. And Paul is telling us that both of these views are, are dead ends because they're dead wrong. And the reason we cannot understand or explain the universe is because it was not ultimately created for us. It was created for Christ. It is all his. It is all his. And even you, you belong to him. You were created for him. You were created for his glory. You exist at his pleasure and for his pleasure. The reason that you are here this morning, and yes, even you who are in Fellowship Hall this morning watching this, this means you too. The reason that you are here is because God created you Jesus Christ created you by himself, for himself. Beloved, that has huge implications for the way we should live. We live not for our pleasure, but for his. We live not for our glory, but for his. I think the more I grow in Christ, the more I see that. I'm studying John Newton right now. I was going to do Martin Luther for my biographical this year. I'm going to do John Newton. The thing that turned me was reading one of his songs that we don't know. And we should find the tune for it or make one up, Charlie, before it's too late. <laughs> Put this to music. And I don't remember all the verses. I just remember the last two lines. And he says this. He's talking about how unworthy he is, and how wicked he, he was, and how much God had to sacrifice to change him, and how God in his mercy justified him freely by his grace. And his last two lines in the song go like this, then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing and Christ is all. Is everything. Beloved, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've heard me say before, I don't know how to eat unless he tells me how to eat. I don't know how to sing unless he teaches me to sing. I don't know how to relate to my wife unless God teaches me to relate properly to my wife. I don't know how to worship unless God teaches me how to worship. I don't know how to eat unless God teaches me to eat. He is the standard of my eating and my drinking and my loving and my marrying and my raising of my children. He is the standard of all things. He created all things by himself and for himself. It all comes back to him. And so Paul can say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and forever. He is before all things. He is before all things. This is interesting how Paul phrases this, this next verse. It was Christ who created all things. It was God's gift to the Son that he should participate in creating all things and then have all things given to him to glorify him by every minute element of it. He existed before any of it was created. Look, he says that. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I mean, the angels, 
Jesus created them in all of their order and all of their rank. All things have been created through him and for him, verse 17. And he is before all things. He is before all things. Before there was creation, there was Christ. There was the Son of God. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. All things hold together by him. And so God gave all of this to the Son. Jesus participated in the creating of it, and ultimately it all comes back to him. It was designed to give him pleasure. It was designed to reveal his glory. Not only that, but when he says he was before all things, and in him all things hold together, he's, he's saying even more. Again, Hebrews 1.3 confirms this truth. The author of Hebrews was writing that Christ, listen to this, Christ upholds all things by his powerful, what? Word. There's that term again that John used. Jesus is the what? The Word. You see, when the ancient philosophers talked about whatever it was that caused the universe to come into being, they didn't know what to call it outside of Israel, right? The pagan philosophers didn't know what to call it, so they called it the Word. It did something like speaking, and when it speaks, things come into being. And saying, Jesus is that word. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is that word. He spoke, and everything that exists today or has ever existed burst into existence. And now the question comes, it's a very scientific question when you think about it. How does it all stay together? I mean, how many people have gotten PhDs in this topic? How many billions of dollars have been spent on super super colliders trying trying to understand the God particle, if there is one? What holds everything together? Until recently, before they came up with that term, God particle, they just referred to it as the strong force, right? The strong force. This isn't Star Wars. Let's not bring that in. Um, Why? Because nobody knows. Why does it all stay together? Why don't atoms just fly apart? Why doesn't the Milky Way just fly apart? Why doesn't our solar system just fly apart? What keeps the sun intact? What keeps the moon intact? What keeps the earth intact? And Paul's answer to that, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He holds it all together by his powerful word. The Lord Jesus upholds it all with his powerful word. He made it with a word. He sustains it by his word. And one day, he will just let go of it. Someday, when he's done, the Old Testament, it describes it like this, he will fold it up like a garment and throw it aside. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth for all who belong to him. No wonder on the day of his birth, multitudes of the heavenly hosts appeared. They did it privately with shepherds who nobody would really believe. And maybe they did that simply because they just had to get it out of their system. Somebody's got to scream and shout and worship. And they burst on the scene of those shepherds guarding their flocks by night, yelling, chanting, or singing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. What child is this? What child is this? 
This is the Christ. He is the king. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He is the image of God. He is the son of God. He is the very power of God. What child is this? He is all these things. And yet there's more. There's three more. But you'll have to come back next week to find out about those. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for revealing these things to us and for showing us what we need to see about Jesus and what we need to know about him. And I suspect, Lord, that there are some who are hearing my voice even now, maybe, maybe some who come every week and they are intrigued by the verse-by-verse verse preaching of the word and they love the music and they loved being loved by your people. And yet they have still not come to you on your terms. They've still not bowed their will to yours and confessed that Jesus only is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They still have not come to you, Lord Jesus, declaring, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Change me. Give me the grace to make the decisions I need to repent. I want to repent. I want to live for you. I want to be yours. Save me. Change me. Do with me what you will. Oh, Father, may that be true of someone in this group today. For the rest of us, oh, Father, I pray that we would not neglect to worship this king, this baby king, who became the man king, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, may it not be true that we make it through this season without worshiping him rightly and daily. Change us, Father, by your grace. Give us eyes to see the glory of Christ. Give us hearts that long to discover him afresh in your word every morning. Make us like your son, to the praise of your glorious grace, for we pray it in Jesus' name.